The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. The books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles. While they're two separate books in our Bibles, that division is not original. Due to scroll length, the book was divided in two, but it was written as one book with one coherent storyline. Now, in our English Bibles, Chronicles comes after the books of Samuel and Kings, and most of Chronicles is actually repeat content from those books. And so most modern readers, when they come to Chronicles, they think, wait a minute, I just read all of this, and so they skip it. And that's a shame, because this book is really unique and important in the Bible. In the traditional Jewish ordering of the Bible, Chronicles is actually the last book because it summarizes all of the Jewish scriptures. The first word in the book is Adam, the first character at the beginning of the story, and then the last paragraph announces the return of Israel from exile. Now, we don't know who wrote this book, but we can tell from details within it, it was produced by somebody who lived a couple hundred years after the Israelites returned from the Babylonian exile. Now, for this author, Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt some time ago, and as we learned from Ezra and Nehemiah, things were not going well. The great prophetic hope was that the city and the temple would be rebuilt, that God would come to live among his people, the messianic king would come, and all the nations would come live under his peaceful rule, and none of that has happened. And so the author of Chronicles has reshaped these stories of David and Solomon and the kings of the past in order to provide a message of hope for the future. And we'll see that he's designed this book to emphasize two clear themes. First, the hope of the coming messianic king, and second, the hope for a new temple. Let's just dive in and you'll see these themes all over the book. First Chronicles begins with nine chapters of genealogies, long lists of names. And you'll read these and think that this is kind of boring, and that may be true for you, but actually they're very, very important. The author is summarizing here the whole storyline of the Old Testament by naming all of the key characters in the stories. And as he does so, he shapes the genealogies to emphasize two key lineages. First is the line of the promised messianic king. So lots of space is dedicated to tracing the line of Judah that led all the way to King David, to whom the messianic promise was given. And then from David, the author traces that line up into his own day. The other family line that receives lots of attention here is that of the priesthood, the descendants of Aaron, who, of course, served in the temple. And so right from the start, you can see the two main themes, the author's hope of the Messiah coming to build a new temple, and it's rooted in these ancient genealogies. Now, after that, the author moves into the stories about David, and most of these are going to be familiar to you from the book of Samuel, but again, there's some really important differences. So first of all, the author leaves out all of the negative stories about David where he's portrayed as weak or immoral. So Saul chasing David around the desert and persecuting him, the story of David's adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband, all of that is gone. And what's left are the stories that portray David as a good guy. And not only that, there's also new additional material that you won't find in the book of Samuel that shows David in a very positive light. So there's a large block of chapters where David makes preparations for the temple. He arranges resources and builders and Levites and choirs. And not only that, the author also portrays David as a Moses-like figure. God gives David plans for building the temple just as he gave plans to Moses for building the tabernacle. So why all this new material about David? The author's not trying to hide David's flaws. He knows that anybody can go read about them in the book of Samuel. Rather, he's trying to portray David as the ideal king. 
in order to make him an image or a type of the future Messiah from the line of David. It's very similar to how Jeremiah or Ezekiel spoke of the coming Messiah as a new David. This is most clear in how the author retells the story of God's covenant promise to David in 1 Chronicles 17. When you compare this story with its parallel in 2 Samuel 7, you'll see that the author of Chronicles is highlighting that neither David nor Solomon nor any of the kings from his line were the messianic king, and that when the Messiah does come, he will be a king like David. And so for this author, these stories about David from the past are what sustain his hope for the future. After David dies, we move into Second Chronicles, which focuses on the kings that lived in Jerusalem. And again, there's lots of overlap with First and Second Kings, but there are many key differences. So the author has left out all of the stories about the kings of northern Israel so he can just focus on the line of David. And there's lots of new material about these kings from David's line. He highlights the kings that were obedient to God and he adds new stories about how their obedience led to success and God's blessing. But he also adds new stories about kings who were unfaithful to God. They didn't follow the Torah, they led Israel to worship idols, and these kings face horrible consequences all leading up to Israel's exile, a mess of their own making. And so this whole section becomes a series of character studies where the author wants later generations of Israelites to learn from their family history and so become faithful to their God and the Torah. Now the book's conclusion is really unique too. At the very end of the book, the king of the Persians is named Cyrus, and he tells the Israelites that they can go back home, return from exile, rebuild the city and the temple. And he says, last line of the book, whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And that's how the book ends, with an incomplete sentence. Now, of course, the author knows about the first return from exile and the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, but clearly in his view, the prophetic hopes of Israel were not fulfilled in those events. And so this incomplete ending shows that the author's hope is set on yet another return from exile, when the Messiah will finally come to rebuild the temple and restore God's people. And so the book of Chronicles, it's the final book of the Jewish scriptures, it ends by pointing forward. It calls God's people to look back in order to look ahead because the past has become the source of hope for the future. So Chronicles concludes the Old Testament as a story in search of an ending. And that's what this book is all about. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 24 says this, And if thy people Israel will put the worst before... Well, excuse me. And if thy people Israel be put to the worst before the enemy... Because they have sinned against thee, speaking of God, and shall return and confess thy name and pray and make supplication before thee, God, in this house, speaking of the temple, then hear thou from the heavens and forgive the sin of thy people Israel and bring them again to the land which thou gavest to them and to their fathers. My hope here today is that by the time we walk out of here in about 30 minutes, uh, you'll have a full encompassing view of First and Second Chronicles and a good understanding of how that looks. So let's pray together. Father, uh, there's a lot of stuff to cover. Um, and many of us come from all different walks of life. Our lives are busy, chaotic. We have a million different things running around our minds. But Lord, I just pray that during this time, we might be students of the word and that Anybody who came here might walk out of here feeling a little more secure in their understanding of, their, of your word. 
And may we be a little more knit together with you at our heart. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. He sat across from me in my office, and he looked at me, the intelligent, mature, intellectually smart 12-year-old that he was, with his chin up in the air, and he goes, Hamasu, I'm not down with that. <laughs> You're not down with that? <laughs> yeah, I'm not down with that. I said, okay. Now what happened? Well, this kid, we'll call him Junior, was in the cafeteria, and he was supposed to be eating his lunch and doing what the monitors tell him to do, and he decided that with his friends, he, it would be a better use of his time to try to sneak out of the cafeteria, get out where there's no supervision, where he could run around and do whatever he wanted. So he tried once, failed, they called him back. He tried again to sneak out the same door, he wasn't too smart. Uh, he failed again. They called him back and said, hey, you need to be in here with the rest of your class. And then he did it a third time. This time he made it through. And he found, or they found that he was missing. They began looking around and sure enough, they found him upstairs in the school and he's running amok with his friends, stirring up all sorts of trouble. Uh, he's, there's classes in session and they're, you know, running, laughing, yelling, all that stuff. And, and, and so they bring him back down and, and the consequence was already decided by the monitor and he's sitting in my office and, and, and he's like, I'm not down with that. And I was like, you're not down with the punishment that we're giving you? Yeah, I don't like that. Well, it's three after-school detentions. It's already been decided. Yeah, I'm not down with that, man. And I was like, well, that's okay. In fact, if I were you, I probably wouldn't be down with that either. <laughs> but you still got to go, buddy. And he's like, man, Hamasu, come on. He's like, I, ha I haven't been that bad, have I? And I was like, buddy, do you know how many referrals you have at this point, halfway through the school year? Three? Fifteen. <laughs> you have fifteen. And he's like, fifteen? Fifteen. He's like, and I said, my suggestion to you is that you just kind of don't make waves. You just take your medicine. You knew you were doing what you shouldn't have been doing. And just, you know, just pay the detentions. The monitors will be okay. They'll move on. Uh, just take your medicine, buddy. And he's like, yeah, I should probably just do that. <laughs> in times in life, there's, there's those moments where you feel like you need to defend yourself. And then there's those other times where you're just like, ah, I got nothing to say. I just got to take my medicine. And in First Chronicles, we find ourselves, or we find the Jews in the middle of taking their medicine. But this wasn't three lunch detentions. <laughs> This was 70 years of slavery. 70 years of slavery. 70 years of slavery. And the reason, well, you name the reason. I mean, there wasn't a sin on the list that Israel hadn't fallen into. Sexual immorality, uh, they did that. Uh, greed, absolutely. Um, idolatry, it was all over the place. It got so bad, the situation degraded to the point of child sacrifice. Well, the Lord looked down and he said, I can't keep blessing you guys. I can't endorse this type of behavior. And the Lord began to withdraw his blessing from them. And he let them go down the road that they were on. And they find themselves captive to the Babylonians for 70 years. 
And they knew the prophecy. Well, they had heard the prophecy that Jeremiah wrote in his book when he said they would fall into captivity for 70 years. And so they begin counting down the years because Jeremiah did say 70 years, but he didn't say 71 years. So hopefully, hopefully, God still cared about them. Well, did he? You know, you can't tell me there's not a point about year 65 where you start wondering, man, has has God just revoked his blessing from us altogether? Is he just going to let us go? Have we messed up? Have we blown it too bad? But there was another prophecy that Isaiah made, and he talked about a Cyrus who would come and move in and command the people of Israel to rebuild the temple, but the king of the Babylonians wasn't Cyrus, and he was the one that had control over him. So how, how, how would they... But then... They heard stories of a king of Persia who had been moving around the entire world. He, his power was growing and growing, and sure enough, he comes through Babylon, goes to war with Babylon, conquers Babylon, and inherits for himself as a spoils of war the Jews. And God begins to move in Cyrus' heart, and he says, allow my people to go back and build a temple for me. True to God's word, typical. Cyrus says, go back and begin to build. Now here's the deal. Israel wasn't foreign to a situation like this. They'd been in a similar situation before, and you know the story, Egypt. And what happens? They're all excited. We're getting out of Egypt. We're finally free. Let's go back home. Let's do this. And it's only a short while later that they're sitting talking to Moses, being like, Moses, why did you lead us here? At least in Egypt, we had the things that we needed, to the basic necessities of life. Did you lead us out here to kill us? What are you doing? And so it's this situation that's so fragile because the captives here in our story are leaving and the tendency is to say, wow, there's 50,000 of us, which is not even half of what went home before in the Exodus. None of us know what it's like to lead a nation or a country or begin to rebuild. We've been in slavery. There might be a few of us who can remember what life was like in Israel before we went into captivity, but Israel wasn't a good place to be during that time. What do we do? The job before us is huge. How do we go about this? And so it's into this context that many most likely think it was Ezra, picks up his pen, and he begins to write a story. Really, it's a blueprint of how to make Israel, I don't want to say it, how to make Israel great. <laughs> Again. <laughs> how to make Israel great. I mean, it's true. Well, well what do you mean? <laughs> Get this guy out of here. What is he? <laughs> Security. <laughs> it's a blueprint of how to, to bring Israel back up to the highest heights again. What do you mean? Well, he picks up the pen and he starts writing names. It's like he's saying, remember. And it's the genealogies. Remember Adam. And he goes down through Abraham. And he goes to the tribes of Israel. And me, if you're like me, well, I can remember when, uh, when I was younger, I used to try to like read the Bible all the way through through my devotions. And I'd, and I'd start in Genesis, and Genesis was great. And I'd get to Exodus, and uh, man, Exodus made me even more excited. And then I'd hit Leviticus, 
And then I'd hit Numbers, and I'm like, Lord, I'm going all the way through the Bible. I can't quit now. So I'd power through Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, fight through Joshua. You know, I'm excited again. Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, all great. But by the time I hit 1 Chronicles, and I hit chapter 1, and I see these names, I'm just, I, I would just, I'm not joking. I quit a couple times in Chronicles because I was like, Oh, Lord, I just don't know if I can keep reading through these names. I, 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 it's just not interesting enough for me. Here's the thing. Divorced from the context of Israel at this time, it can be tough to read through those names. But placed inside the context, you can begin to see what Ezra was probably doing there. He's saying, remember God's faithfulness. An Israelite, a Jew, couldn't read through these names without being able to recall the stories of God's faithfulness. Remember Adam? How God was faithful to him even though he blew it so badly? And his descendant goes to Noah, and, and don't forget about God's faithfulness to Noah. The whole world was going down, and God saved him and began to rebuild through him and a couple other families. And, and, and you remember Noah's descendants, Abraham. God gave Abraham a promise, didn't he? Remember, Jews. Remember, Israel. Promise. He told Abraham that your descendants would outnumber the stars of the sky, and he told you that you would have a homeland. And don't forget Abraham's descendants, uh, Jacob, from whom we get the 12 tribes of Israel. And he spends chapters 2 through 8 talking all about the 12 tribes of Israel and mentioning the families there. And in chapter 3, he says, don't forget Judah and don't forget David because David was a really important guy. God was so faithful to David and David was faithful to God too. Remember God's faithfulness there. And then in chapter 9, he does something interesting. He says, and now let's remember the families of the exiles that go back to Israel to rebuild the temple. He connects them all together. And it's like he's saying, look at God's past faithfulness. If God was faithful to Adam, and faithful to Noah, and faithful to Abraham, and faithful to Jacob, and faithful to the 12 tribes of Israel, I'm putting you in here and understand that you are connected to that story. Lean on God's past faithfulness. I know the job is big, but understand that if God was faithful in the past, he will continue to be faithful in the future. Now, here, I can remember a couple of years ago, my wife was in nursing school, and um, she went to RCC's nursing school, and RCC's nursing school is no joke, okay? 300 apply, 30 get in, 30 don't graduate, because if at any time, any time in the quarter you fall below a 74%, you're booted out of that program like that. Okay, 74. A 94 is an A minus, and a 93 is a B. It is stringent, it is rigorous, and I can remember those years. And for two years she was in, in that nursing school, and every other week was a test. And every other week the stress levels went up. And I can remember every other week she would get so nervous and she'd start to worry and she'd be like, oh man, I don't know, I can't do bad on this test. If I do bad on two tests in a row, it only takes a couple bad tests, a couple C minuses and I'm out of this program. And these are tough tests. And I'd always look at her and we had this conversation probably like a hundred times and I'd say something to the likes of, Brooke, do you remember elementary school? 
Yeah. What were your grades like in elementary school? Well, I got pretty good grades. And junior high was kind of the same story, right? You did pretty good in junior high. Yeah, I think I, I got pretty good grades. You know, what were they? A's. Okay. And Brooke, you went to high school at Grants Pass, right? And and at Grants Pass, I, re- I think I remember your mom saying you had a 4.0, didn't you? Well, yeah, I had a 4.0. You were valedictorian, top of your class, weren't you, when you graduated? <laughs> yeah. That means you never got an A, which is a miracle in my book. <laughs> yeah. And then undergrad, I remember you were going to college too. What, did you get straight? You got straight A's in, in college too, or your undergrad stuff. No. <laughs> I got a B. Oh, what was the story behind that B? Well, I thought I had an A, and I didn't do the extra credit assignment, because what's the point if I have an A? And then I found out I had a B later on, and it was too late to turn in the extra credit. So oh, it was the worst day of my life. <laughs> and I look at her and I say, Brooke, you're going to do just fine. Why? Because I could look at her track record. I could see her past record of faithfulness. She got A's here. She got A's there. Junior high, she got A's. High school, she got A's. College, she got one B, but all A's pretty much. I knew by looking at her track record that she was going to do fine. Now, did she have a part to play? Absolutely. Could she just like check out and say, okay, I got A's in the past. That's it. I'm, I'm done. No. She had a part to play. And it's that same thing that I believe Ezra is doing in the first nine chapters of of 1 Chronicles. He's saying, look at God's faithfulness here, 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 and he will continue to be faithful to you now in the present. Do you have a part to play? Yeah, you do. Can you check out? No, 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 no. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get out there and do this, but just understand, even though the job is big, even though you don't know how this is all going to play out, even though you don't necessarily know what to do, let's see how this works. Let's see God's faithfulness play out. And so he's reminding the Jews of God's faithfulness, but I like what Ezra does in the next chapters too, because he understands. Sometimes the questions in our brain, well, we need an example. And he touches on chapter 10 where he talks about Saul, but Saul's really just setting the stage uh, for chapters 11 through 29, the rest of the book. And 11 through 29 is all about King David. And he looks at King David and he says, this is your example. And 11 through 29 are all about David's national agenda. I I love that video. I feel like we could almost all go home right after that video. One thing I sort of disagree with is he says they don't talk about David's personal sins. They try to make him, put him in a good light. I disagree. They talk about multiple of David's sins, but they're the sins that have to do with the whole country with all of Israel. They talk about him numbering the people and making a big mistake. And he includes that. It's not David's spotless record, but he includes that because it's David's national agenda. It's what has to do with the whole country. He's trying to make a new nation great again. And so he talks about this, and there's several things that, are the, are such a, that tell me why David is such a great example. And one of the first things David does when he, takes, when he rises to power is he says, where's the ark? You see, Saul kind of did this lip service to God, and he just, you know, he'd talk like he loved God, but it came, if it came to between what Saul wanted and what God wanted, it was always going to be what Saul wanted to do. David says, none of that. 
We are making God central. Get the ark, and they load it on the backs of the priests. And he says, we're bringing it to the nerve center of Israel. We're bringing it to the, the, the very crux of where all the operations of this country take place. It was a spiritual, but it was also a symbolic move for the entire country. He takes up the ark on the shoulders of the priests. They march it, and they stop, and they light a sacrifice up to God, and they sing praises to him, and they're dancing before him, and they're looking to please God and worship him, and they march a little further, and then they put another sacrifice on, and they sing more songs, and they praise, and it's this big event. God is coming to the center of Israel again, and David takes some flack for it, but he doesn't care. Next thing he does, he begins to look around, chapters 11 through 29. He says, I have a house. I'm looking around at all these people of Israel. They have a house, but God dwells in a tent. How is that right? And you find as you read these chapters that David begins to obsess over building God a house. And as he's beginning to make the plans to build this house, God comes to him, chapter 17, 1 Chronicles, and he says to him, he says, David, hey, I, I'm paraphrasing. David, I really appreciate what you're doing here. It pleases my heart. But you're a man of war. You have blood on your hands. Listen, it's going to be your son, Solomon, that builds the house. But thank you. And then you find David, such a positive attitude. He says, okay, if I can't build this house, I'm still going to have a part in it. So he says, all right, you guys, you guys start getting the stones that are going to build the foundation. You guys, you get the tools together that are going to operate in the, in the temple. You guys are in charge of decorations. And he starts bringing the pieces together so that when he passes it on to Solomon, Solomon can put it together like a quick connect puzzle and just sort of pop the pieces together. I mean, it takes much longer than that, but that's David's heart in the matter. And then you keep reading and you find that David doesn't stop there. After he begins assembling all the stuff it takes to build, he says, okay, now you, this group of Levites, you guys are in charge of the gatekeeping when this temple is built, and here's how I want you to do that. He says, okay, you guys, you're in charge of the altar. This is going to be your job. This, this is your job. So you got to do it. And he begins to put the system in place for that. And he says, okay, you guys are in charge of making sure the operations of the temple function well. And I find David's not even going to see the temple built. But what he's doing is he's putting the systems and the structures in place so that long after he's gone, the proper worship of God still takes place. I think it's beautiful. Make God central. Build him a house. Build for him a legacy long after he's gone. But the best part is God looks at this and he says, David, you will not outbless me. Uh-uh. He says, David, you want to make me central? For as long as anyone talks about the history of Israel and their kings, you will be the center figure of Israel. You will be the, the example that all look to. David, you want to build me a house? Chapter 17, again, 1 Chronicles, God comes to David and he says, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to establish you a house. And David, you want to build me a legacy? You want to make sure that people are worshiping long worshiping me long after you're gone? Well, guess what? I'm going to make you a legacy. And in that same chapter, he says to David, the Messiah will come from your line. You will not outgive me. And it's this heart relationship between the two of them. David loves God and just wants to and longs to build God up and make him great. And God says, David, I'm going to do the same for you. It's like a, 
healthy marriage? Is there any marriage that's better than a husband that says to his wife, I love you, I care for you, I'm gonna sacrifice you, I wanna bless you. And then the wife looks back and says, I love you and I care for you and I wanna bless you and take care of you. And no, you go through the door first. No, you go through first. No, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. No, no, I love you more. No, I love you. That's what you happy married people say, right? Um, And Junior looks at this, and he might have a little disgust, but what Junior doesn't know is that the entire house, the entire family is being raised up because of the love mom and dad have for each other. And we find between this devotion between David and God that all of Israel is set on a trajectory. It's raised up, and it's set on a trajectory that peaks under the reign of Solomon. Solomon. Well, closing the book on 1 Chronicles 29, David passes away. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, Solomon takes to the throne. The first six chapters of 2 Chronicles are all Solomon putting the temple together. And it's a beautiful scene because in the sixth chapter of 2 Chronicles, Solomon goes and and he gives the speech to coronate the temple. And it's a phenomenal speech. I read an excerpt from it at the beginning of this. And and if you have some time, if you want to just check out a piece of it, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, or you can read the same speech in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon goes and coronates the temple. And at the end of the speech, you want to talk about uh, drop the mic. God come down, comes down in a pillar of fire upon the altar. And just It hits, and he lights the altar on fire, uh, uh, ratifying Solomon's speech. And all the people go nuts, and praises ascending again, and sacrifices are being made. And this goes on for days and days and days. And finally, Solomon says, whoa, whoa, whoa. hey, time to go home now. And he puts an end to it, and he says, we got to go home. Then chapter 7, excuse me, chapters 8 and 9 are all about the greatness, the highest heights that Israel reaches. You literally have the entire world graveling before the feet of Israel. Queens are coming up from Africa all the way up through Egypt, up to Israel just to see what's going on because they hear stories and what they see, man, blows their minds more than what they heard. And they go home thinking, oh my goodness, what an amazing place. And it's like Ezra sitting here writing this story, and he's saying, remember God's faithfulness, 1 through 9. 11 through 29, look at David's example, the heart relationship he had with God that just raised Israel up. And then look at chapters 1 through 9-ish and see the relationship, how Israel reaches its highest heights when God is most glorified, the coronation of the temple. Isn't that kind of, if I'm honest, the question we ask ourselves a lot? Why am I not reaching my highest heights? It may not sound like that exactly, but I told myself a million times, man, why am I here? I, I'm so much, I should be so much further along in this walk. Churches ask themselves that question. Why are we not reaching the heights that we should be reaching? I'll tell you what. You will reach your highest heights when God is most glorified. But can I put a disclaimer on that? God will never be most glorified if you're serving him to reach your highest heights. 
You will reach your highest heights when God is most glorified, but he'll never be most glorified if you're serving him to reach your highest heights. I find that in, I'm a little bit dramatic sometimes, and I hope that I'm over-exaggerating this, but sometimes I get a little concerned because I look at people and I look at the church and I think, man, it's becoming so us-centered. It's becoming so me-centered. It's kind of a selfish thing, like I'm wanting to reach my height. I was just listening to a, a YouTube video. This is a perfect example in the biggest church in wherever, and the speaker goes on, and, and she says, she goes, when you worship the Lord, you're doing it for you. Oh, I guess it's, that's one way of looking at it, that you're doing it for the Lord, but really, when you worship the Lord, you find that you're happy, and nothing makes God more pleased than seeing you happy. So let's worship the Lord and find that we're the ones blessed. And I was like, what? Huh? See, we can find in the church this me mentality creeping in. It really should be a God mentality. I find it in my own life. I find it when I come to church. Not here, but I've said, I've said this. Going to church, ready to worship God. Let's do this. I'm going to worship God. I walk into the doors. I walk out, and I'm going, if I have to listen to that music one more time, if I have to listen to D, C, G, and E, E minor played one more time, I am going to die. And then it's heart check time, right? Because I could grab this guitar, heaven forbid, and hammer out some nasty chords and, and say some lyrics, and we could worship. Because worship's about God, and it's not about us. I mean, the one time I think it's okay to be somewhat skeptical of worship is when it's me-centered. And that's another way me fits into Sometimes the church today, what do you mean? We sing songs. Lord, I want to worship you. Let's open with this song. Lord, I want more of you. Rain down on me. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry for more of you. I lift my holy hands up. I want to touch you. I lift my voice up. I like that song. <laughs> Sometimes it can be me-centered. Now, hear me out. There is a time and a place where it is completely and totally appropriate to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I need more of you. Lord, I want more of you. I, I, you know, th there is a time that's appropriate for that. But I also think it's interesting to look at, and I love this, that the songs that so often stand the test of time are the songs that are God-centered. You know, shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing power and majesty, praise to the King. Mountains bow down and seas roar at the sound of your name. O oh Lord thy God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee how great thou art. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. And there's a spectrum in our walks. And if here is God-centered and here is me-centered, I'm not saying when things go this way, it's always bad, but I do feel sometimes that something is lost. May we be people who reach our highest heights but don't care because our success is based on glorifying him and him alone. We're all about this heart relationship with him where we just want to see him glorified. 
where we're all, it's not about even what he's done for us. It's just about who he is, the character he displays, the God that he is. I guess the best way I could explain to this is when I think of my parents and my dad, God is a heavenly father. And you know, when I was little, <laughs> when I was little, I used to do everything my dad said and my mom said for my age plus four. What does that mean? Well, they had come up with this rule for us that we would do all these chores, and it was a list of chores. The poster was this big, and it was like, and they told us that if we did these chores, we could make our age plus four dollars in allowance every month. And so we'd have to sweep the rocks, we'd have to wash the dishes every weekday, we'd have to vacuum the house, we'd have to clean up the dog's poo-poo, and we'd have to clean our rooms, and we'd have to, on the weekends, we'd have to clean mom's car, you know, and we'd do all these things, and he'd always, the worst was when he'd have us clean up, he'd trim all the bushes, and he'd say, all right, boys, go get the, go get the leaves, and we'd throw them in, and it was like, and I'd do, I would do so much for this, my age plus four dollars, I was like eight years old, making 12 bucks a month, Jason, <laughs> Jason was four years older, and he got four more dollars than me just because he was older, even though he's doing the same things, you know? And, 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 it was like, and we would save this money for years to buy Nintendos and stuff like that. But, yeah, I would do these chores. I would do so much just because I, I wanted something from him. I wanted something from them. Now that I'm older, it's kind of strange the change. I begin to, like see my parents and see the way, the, the example they set for me, and not so much even what they did for me, it's just the, who they are, the character they display, the, the, the person, that, the choices that they've made. It's just, I look at it and I just find myself now as an old guy when I'm at their house, finished dinner, dishes are sitting there. I, I don't want them to do I, I got the dishes and I'll go and start, you know, doing the dishes. And, Oh, you, you, houses, I'm going to pick up the house a little bit. Yeah, I, I, you guys, you guys relax. I just want to go do this. It has nothing to do with getting anything out of them. It has everything to do with just who they are. May we find in our walks with the Lord that we just find ourselves, Lord, how can I not want to do the things that you ask? May we find the commandments of God not grievous but joyous. Because it's not even about the commandments of God. Yeah, I hope we reach our highest heights or whatever, but so much more than that, just hope we see God for who he is and follow him for that. And Ezra's writing this in the first part of 2 Chronicles, and he's saying, look at what happens when you have this heart connection with God, this relationship. The Lord begins to pour out his blessings upon this nation. You want to make Israel great? Look at this. See this picture. And then chapter 10 hits, and it's 10, 11, 12, and it's king after king after king after king of Judah, dun -da -dun -da -dun -da -dun. and Ezra is screaming through these chapters. He's saying, look at their examples. Learn from what they do, right? But also, learn from what they do wrong. And, and the, the, the phrase he repeats over and over and over again, if you want to get his point, look at the stuff he repeats over and over again. He says, this king, here's a king, and he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And this guy, he didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And the qualifying factor 
when you read the stories for what is right in the Lord, you can boil it down to this. Did they have a heart for the Lord? Not a, did I do what God said all the time? Did I have a heart for the Lord? Because there's so many things going on in Israel at that time. There's a million different idols that they could serve, a million different ways that they could be derailed and start following after their own flesh. And they do that, and they go back and forth. There's a million different distractions. But the ones that stand above all the others are the ones who, who, who had the heart after the Lord. And it was that heart that motored them, that drove them to do that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. I find in our days today, and this is in conclusion, we live in a time when there's a million different ways to go wrong. And to do what's right, rewind. To do the commandments of God, if you are living out the commandments, you will find yourself not only marginalized, but even persecuted. I mean, if you stand up for what you believe in, you are going to be, you're the outcast now. And that's okay. But more than ever, the church needs to see that we need to serve God, not because it's what he tells us to do, but may we just see God for who he is. And may we allow that to change our hearts. And may that allow us to follow his commandments, not because we're even focusing on the commandments, just because we're so fixated on who he is. Because in these times, as things become more and more unfavorable to Christians, people that just do moralism, it's not going to stand. There's too much stacked against doing these things to even be able to keep going. It's going to be the people who say, Lord, my heart is connected to you in this devotional. So after you and, and these works or whatever, that's just a byproduct of what I see in you and what you've done and who you are. And I am fixated on that. And so, Second Chronicles wraps up. And Ezra finishes with this is the perfect thing. He just says, essentially, it's saying, go. Now go. Let's rebuild. Let's do this. Chapters 1 through 9, let's remember God's faithfulness. Chapters 11 through 29, let's look at David's example, that man after God's own heart. He built God a house. He, he has made God central. He, he established God's lineage, or he sought to. And then let's see how you reach your highest heights when God's most glorified, but it's not about that. And then, for heaven's sake, let's learn from the examples of those who have gone before us, and let's not make the same mistakes. It's all about the heart. May our heart be fixed on God. And may God give you application long beyond this, the things I said. Now let's go. Let's do this. In Jesus' name. Father, we just... Uh, I worry that I didn't communicate clearly. Uh, I pray that our hearts would be fixed on you. May we just be impressed with you for who you are. Yeah, you've done so much for us. Absolutely, you've blessed us so much. But Lord, may we just be fixated on who you are. And I just pray that our hearts would change, that it would no longer be about moralism, but it would just be about you. I got a long way to go. We have a long way to go, Lord. But we pray these things, and we look to that future. So will you complete those things in us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Thanks, you guys. You're dismissed.